Welcome to TV7 Israel's podcast. We invite you to listen and share our latest content from Israel and the region. Welcome. My name is John O'Sullivan. I'm your host today of a show, My Brother's Keeper, which will examine one of the most important topics of the time. I'll be discussing this topic, namely anti-Christian persecution in the Middle East, with two of my colleagues from the Danube Institute, Jeffrey Kaplan, who's the head of our special projects, Virag Lawrence, who is a researcher specifically looking um, at the role of women in this particular problem. So I want to begin by asking Jeffrey to explain the nature of this show and what we'll be doing, because it's slightly different to the way most shows approach this, isn't it? I think it is. The project is called Attacks on Christian Communities and Institutions, and it it envisions fieldwork conducted in 10 countries, in the EU, in the Middle East, and in Africa. So what we're doing at the beginning is looking at a structure that is scientific and not confrontational or ideological. So we're looking at three specific forms of anti-Christian violence. One is Christian persecution, which is government-sponsored, conducted by governments, or conducted by proxies on behalf of governments. This is relatively rare. The second form is by far the most common, which is intercommunal violence, which is violence between faith communities um, or between groups that are from different social strata, different faith, different ideas. Third is the least studied, which is internecine violence, which is violence within the Christian community between different denominations or sectarian groups. So this is essentially the structure that we're looking at. Now, could I ask Virag if you would tell us about the particular aspects that you want to concentrate on? As part of the research group, my main aspect will be concentrating on the gender-specific violence within the uh, within the Christian communities or against these Christian communities and also the uh, like the social background so uh, it's very important to concentrate on the issue of family of uh, women and of children in these situations now I want to stress that in the next six weeks we won't actually be reporting on these we'll be presenting you the viewer um, with a way that we think it has to be approached in order to honestly meet the kind of standards that you just outlined. Perhaps I could ask you to look at that question, Jeff. Sure. At at this point, we are doing the structure. We're doing the background research and we're doing intensive interviews by Zoom and in person with people in the region and also scholars, NGOs who study the region, who study each country and each region quite deeply. So at this point, it's almost the theory. Um, we've, We've completed only one of our 
field work, field work um, locations, which is in Poland, and in two weeks we go to Iraqi Kurdistan for the next. So what we're seeing in this series of programs is an overview of the situation in each of the countries. And what we'll present when we come back after perhaps after six or eight months is the findings. And we'll see how the theory and the praxis come together. Now, that's the way we will be approaching the question in the next six programs. Um, it's a production of the Danube Institute and TV7. Um, and we'll be returning, of course, at the end of the process of fieldwork to give you our results. But for the moment, we're looking forward now to discussing with you how to approach this as honestly and as scientifically as possible. The first country we're going to be looking at today is one of the most important countries in the Middle East, Egypt. And I'm going to ask Jeffrey if he will now um, introduce a guest to throw us more, more light on this subject. Yeah, I'll be glad to. The as, I, as we said, we're already conducting intensive interviews with experts, people from the region. And the first we'd like to introduce is Mr. David Curry. David was the former CEO of Open Doors USA, which became probably the premier NGO in tracking violence against Christians around the world. Today, he's the president and founder as well as CEO of the Global Christian Relief, which is really taking up the work of Open Doors and taking it further. So perhaps David could set the context for Egypt best. I think in the last few years, you've seen the government of Egypt trying to protect the rights of Christians, particularly in Cairo, in the, in the urban areas. What you don't see is in the in Upper Egypt and some of the more rural areas, you have both the municipal governments, the police forces, which can either be passively standing by while uh, extremists or or others attack Christian individuals or locations, communities, and sometimes even participating in it. So in the upper Egypt, I don't think things have improved greatly, although obviously the government is trying to make room for the Christian community in, in the urban areas. I think there's a multifaceted element here. First of all, you have some people which which are literally who are literally told, taught that Christians are infidels, that they that, that the theology behind it is significant and they're not researching, finding out for themselves. So they, they take that at face value and justify their attacks on Christians based on their theology. I also think that we're in a, an age where being, you know, being a minority faith is, uh, is often a difficult place to be. Uh, we are, through social media and other ways, broken down more and more into these sub-identities, and people seem to be attacking sub-identities, and I don't think you need a whole lot of illustration on how that's happening, but for Christians in the Middle East, in Egypt, in some of these rural areas, it's a very dangerous place to be. In Upper Egypt, in the rural areas, you have a lot of violence against Christians. Some of it is discrimination. I was talking to one uh, Christian woman recently who can't leave her house without being tracked, followed. Uh, another Christian businessman whose who's business has effectively been shut down because extremists park their, their, uh, their gang in front of his building and people are afraid to enter. This is a forced 
way for people to not you, you know populate a Christian business. So there are all kinds of high and low levels of persecution, largely in rural areas where the central government has little or no control. What I'd like now to do, now that David has given us that brief intro, is to turn to you, Jeffrey, and say that obviously the legal uh, situation is important, but the demographic situation, the makeup of the population of Egypt is also crucial here. Can you give us some background on that? Yeah, this is extremely important. As you can see from the graphic, the Sunni Muslim population of Egypt is roughly 90% of Egypt. The Christians are perhaps 10 and others are tiny. To, to put it mildly. So obviously the demographics set the political and social context. So Sunni Islam is very much at the heart of Egyptian legislation, of Egyptian social life, and of the Egyptian worldview. And Christians have always been to a degree outside of this. Now, as a matter of fact, the government has been quite strongly uh, supporting the idea of Islam accepting the role of other faiths in the society. I mean, uh, the, the, the uh, president, uh, President Sisi, gave an address to mm -hmm. the most important university uh, in which he urged um, Muslims uh, to accept uh, others. How powerful is that socially? How, does that go right the way down the government? It's extremely important, but how far it goes down the government has a lot to do with the legal structure and with the fact that identity cards, which is a something that we'll be looking at in each of the Middle Eastern countries, reflects the religion. The Egyptian legislation that is relevant here is based on Sunni Islam and is on Islamic law. It is not, I really want to stress this, it is not Sharia law by any means, and that's a misunderstanding many people have, but it's based in principle on Islamic law, and Islamic law is very strict on the point of religion and on the, inter, on, on the relationship between religions, especially in the family. So much of your life is governed by what's said on these identity cards. What, for example, does the law say on the right of people to convert from Islam to another religion? That's the key point. And here is where we have to have some understanding of Islamic history, culture, and law. In Islam, it is forbidden for anybody to coerce somebody to become a Muslim. But once you become a Muslim, apostasy is absolutely forbidden. So when you have issues such as conversion or intermarriage, that's where even the best intentions of a president like al-Sisi um, begin to break down. Now, obviously, a big question is the role of women in society, and particularly, for example, what happens if a Christian woman uh, marries uh, a Muslim man. Uh, what kind of difficulty might occur in such cases? As difficulties about the uh, role of conversion was already mentioned, I would like to refer to that it's, um, it makes women especially vulnerable in this case. So as it was mentioned, um, 
conversion is not forbidden by law, but according to the Islamic principles, it's not allowed in practice. And so it makes women especially vulnerable. So, for example, if there is an Islam, a Muslim uh, woman who wants to convert to Christianity, then uh, it's the same with the ID card that the children of the converted parents will be registered as a Muslim. So because it is not officially recognized by the authorities, the children of converted parents will be registered as Muslims. Now, obviously, that's a, a general set of ideas. On the ground, when, um, uh, when people get married and so on, in the local community, um, how is respect for both the woman who's made her mind, changed, changed her religion maybe, or hasn't changed her religion, and her husband, what influences will that will bring, be brought to bear by the local community on them? So we have to say that uh, particularly those women who are converted from uh, Islam to Christianity have to face a lot of pressure in all spheres of their lives, not just in their private life. For example, due to reasons they uh, cannot express their freedom, their, their faith uh, freely uh, among their family members if they are not converted. And um, they also have to face such forms of violence like uh, forced marriage, because if they fam- if their families uh, don't accept their conversion, then uh, they don't want to show the whole community that, okay, this member of my family is converted, so they want to uh, hide it. And uh, maybe, Jeffrey, can you elaborate on this, um, where, where this come from, these traditions? Yeah, there's a history here. And remember, in Egypt, there is the law but the interpersonal relations are governed very much by tradition and by and by religion. So in Islam, a man may marry, as they say, any a woman from any of the peoples of the book, the uh, Jewish, Christian, or Muslim. Women must marry a Muslim. So we're really looking at issues involving women because with men, it's simply an accepted practice. When a Christian woman marries a Muslim, there's really not a big issue. But when the reverse happens, it's a very big issue. And at that point, you see rejection from family, you see violence um, being that happens quite often. And this is largely something that is relatively prevalent in Upper Egypt and increasingly rare in the urban areas. Um, now, let me turn to the role of religious authorities. Um, if authority is dispersed in Islam uh, across several authoritative voices. To what extent have religious authorities within Islam um, begun to talk in different terms about their neighbours? And to what extent is there resistance to um, uh, to accepting the kind of equal role of of other religions in 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 society? It's a good question, and I don't want to bring the discussion into a discussion of Islam, but in Egypt, there are centers that are extremely influential, such as Al-Azhar, and they've been quite mixed in this. Um, they, Since the ousting of the Muslim Brotherhood, there has been a move towards greater inclusion. You're seeing after 2016, there was a law that was passed about churches and church building. So since then, um, the, the cops have 
been very public in their support of what the government has been doing. There's been increasing church building. There's been increasing protection of churches and properties. There are exceptions in places like the Sinai and deep in Upper Egypt. There are There is still a pattern of violence. There's mob violence. And there are attacks on women in really quite specific forms in Egypt. But... But these things are to some extent changing now as a result of, um, for example, President Sisi's address Mm -hmm. um, to the the university. President Sisi is an important figure in this. But the courts, government, and most important, the way people interact, social institutions and social beliefs change much more slowly than governments in Egypt, which tend to change quite quickly, as you know. Now, of course, the Coptic religion is a very much a part of Egyptian life going back centuries, in fact, going back 2,000 years. Sure. So um, does that make a difference uh, into the view of, of those Christians as opposed to, for instance, um, Protestant evangelicals who might want to convert people mm. in Egypt? Well, Copts are 90% of the Christian population of Egypt. So they have overwhelming authority. They have, in recent years, pretty good relations with the Egyptian government. There are, as we've said, regional issues that are very difficult, but they are a registered religion within the Egyptian state and Egyptian society. And this registration is extremely important because it it bestows rights and it bestows protection. So others like other newcomer groups, um, American evangelicals who go there to um, proselytize and to convert, they have a much greater problem. Cops are very much accepted in society. There are many problems that remain, but they have a legal standing and a historical standing that others do not have. Now, obviously, uh, the question of anti-Christian persecution is our topic, uh, and and you looked at the role of women here. But I'm also curious as to the role of um, Western feminism. Has that made any impact on the society and any impact on how people view women? I believe that uh, the fact that the question of uh, violence against Christians and uh, the very fact that we are here and talking about the gender uh, perspective of this question um, focuses on the issue that um, we are kind of having these uh, these uh, feminist lines in the in uh, the Egyptian Christian communities as well, and um, I think that it does have an influence. Uh, but it is up to our research to examine how much and to uh, mm. what extent. Yes, yes. Uh, now, obviously, one very important influence is the threat of violence. And I wonder if you can give us some idea of to the degree to which that has diminished in recent years or has not diminished. Mm. It has diminished, but it still is very much a problem and still very much exists. Um, Upper Egypt is really the flashpoint for this. And so the forms of violence tend to be mob violence. They tend to be attacks on women and in a very specific way. When I was in Egypt long ago, and this was in the, at the end of the Sadat era and the Mubarak era, there were mobs in urban centers like Cairo, Alexandria, 
where women in Western clothes were attacked on the street, not because specifically they were Christian, but because they were Western or Western appearing. And these attacks would be, they would have their clothes ripped off. They would be verbally and sometimes physically abused. And it was with almost complete impunity. That now has pretty much gone. And this wasn't just Sisi. This was also an evolution. There's a Me Too movement now in Egypt. And the impact of social media has made a big difference. This, however, is something that does continue in the rural areas. And it is something that will change very slowly. The problem is that a mob will attack a woman or a community or a person. And in those areas, they have almost complete impunity because they're not arrested. There is no prosecution. So they're, on the one hand, very high-level prosecutions that people know of, but the kind of day-to-day violence that does happen is, in these rural areas, um, unchecked. Um, Egypt is um, maybe a relatively poor country compared to the West, but it is not a primitive country by any means. It's a highly sophisticated society, Mm -hmm. which has been in operation now for centuries. I wonder, therefore, to what extent um, the role of education is changing all of the things you've just been talking about, particularly the the resort to violence. It's a deep question that we don't have an answer to at this point, but we can. We have some speculations, which I think are quite important. Um, education is in two forms, and you'll see this not just in Egypt, but throughout the Islamic world. On the one hand, there are the Western-style universities, which are really good. The American University of Cairo, for example, has been in operation for a long time. And they teach in terms of a very Western standard, and their view is obviously very Western. But there's also the traditional education of the madrasa, of the religious religious centers. And that's quite different. And that maintains a conservatism. So you'll see in Egypt and in every other country of the Middle East we're going to look at this clash of forces between what, what might be said the modern, they would say the westernized or the foreign, and the traditional. And it's a battle that has been going on since colonial times. And it continues in different forms now with the impact of social media. Traditionalism in religion is is generally conservative, as the name, as the word suggests, but it is not necessarily hostile or unfriendly Mm -hmm. to other religions or indeed to lack of religion. Mm -hmm. How does that play into this? It's extremely important because I think you have to look at two things. Historically, when Islam was had the great empires, the Umayyad, the Abbasid, when they were powerful, when they ruled most of the world, the situation of the other peoples of the book the, were really quite good. The Jews were protected in a way that they were not in Europe. Christian communities could have almost complete autonomy as long as everybody played the, paid the jizya, the, the the tax. But over time, as these empires fell, as Western 
imperial, uh, imperialism began to set a new tone and take over these countries. What had been an open kind of conservatism and a tradition of acceptance became instead one of defense, of being very defensive. So Western ideas were encased in Western culture, which were encased in Western control. And what do you look at to try to fight these? But the tradition. And it may not be the historical tradition, but it's a constructed tradition. And so you get things like radical Islam. And radical Islam really has its epicenter in Egypt with the Muslim Brotherhood, with the later teachings of Said Qutb, whose thought still is influential in Daesh, in ISIS, whose thought is really formative in groups like Al-Qaeda. So Egypt remains a kind of center, culturally, as you say, in terms of radical Islam as well, and it becomes also the center of Coptic culture and traditional Christian culture in the region. So that's why we began in Egypt. Egypt is perhaps the most important country in the region. A final question to you, uh, Virag. Um, how are you going to approach uh, these questions um, when you get to Egypt? The reason why our research group is uh, made up both women and men is um, that we want to be able to go into the um, both the, uh, the men and the women uh, parts of the, uh, not just the Christian communities, but um, uh, with, within those communities, we, we are planning to do the research. And so I believe that it will help a lot that we can go into um, deeper interviews with women as well and see that they don't have to face this uh, anti-Christian violence just, for example, due to the legal reasons, but also uh, they have to face that um, at the cultural level sometimes. And also uh, they sometimes have to face physical harassment as well. And it's very important that the men part of our research group will have to be able to do the same kind of deep interviews with, uh, with the men, because men sometimes have to face different um, types of violence, like they are uh, mostly affected in the economic sphere. For example, they suffer discrimination in, uh, in the work workplaces. And uh, also, it's an important question that we have to deal with, uh, men are affected because of this anti-Christian violence as the leaders of the churches, because those are men. And um, for example, if anti-Christian violence has an effect on the community as the way that uh, it results in emigration, then it endangers the future church leadership as well. Uh, Virag, Jeffrey, I'd like to ask you a lot of more questions, but we're running out of time. So thank you very much for being here. Uh, on behalf of uh, TB7, on behalf of the Danube Institute, thank you for watching. Thank you for joining us in another TV7 Israel podcast. For more content, visit our website at tv7israelnews.com or follow us on social media.